during this season of Easter has revolved around our desire to become a big church. This is the third week that we've used this image that you see on the screen. And I don't know if you've ever paid much attention to the little tagline that's on there where it says, how a single event launched a movement. And, and I wonder if you think, what, what was that single event? By now you probably know, what was the single event that launched the movement? Resurrection, thank you. Resurrection of Jesus Christ, the single event that launched the movement. If there was no resurrection of Christ, there would be no church. We would have no hope. Now, when we say that our ambition to be, uh, is to be a big church, it means that our ambition is, has something to do with our impact, not our numbers. Now, there's nothing wrong with numbers, large or small, but Elam desires to be a church used by God to make an impact for Christ on the world beginning at this corner of Portage and Spence and extending into the neighborhoods in which each one of us lives. Uh, so keep in mind that in the Middle English, when, when this word was created and developed, big, it, it didn't mean numbers, it meant strong or mighty. And this is what we want Elam to be. We want to be strong and mighty to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our risen Savior. Now this morning we're focusing on a story that Ashley's read a, a good part of it for you. And, and we're looking at Peter and, and uh, John as they're headed into the temple for a time of worship. Now, about the same time, there's a man being carried into the temple where he's delivered at the beautiful gate, where he could ask for money for, from those who were coming into worship. This man has been crippled since birth, 40 years or more. And the gate that Luke calls beautiful was probably the gate that we would call Nicanor, it was a gate that was covered with Corinthian bronze. The doors were completely covered. And they said it was more beautiful than the gates that had silver and gold on them. It just shone in the sunlight. This is a model of what the gate might have looked like. Note the steps that lead up to the gate. And this gate separated the court of the Gentiles, the part of the temple where Gentiles could go, and the court of the women, where women could go, but they could go no farther into the temple than the court of the women. And we think maybe he established that as his location because he discovered in many years of experience that women were more generous or more inclined to be generous than maybe some of the men. We also know from the story that he's there every day at this same spot asking for help. So he would have been well known in the town of Jerusalem. They wouldn't have necessarily known him by name, but as soon as someone had said, you know that man that sits at the beautiful gate and, and asks for money, everybody would know about whom they were speaking. Now, as we read the story, we begin to wonder about a few questions. How many times had Jesus and his disciples walked past this man? Had they ever given him money? Now, the disciples had witnessed all sorts of miracles as they traveled with Jesus, including several people being raised from the dead. Had they ever wondered, why doesn't Jesus heal this man that we walk past? Why doesn't he do it? Well, obviously, by now, the man hasn't been healed at this point of the story, but we wonder ourselves, maybe Jesus had a different plan. Maybe Jesus knew all along he was going to heal the man, but he also knew he was going to use one of his disciples in the accomplishment of that miracle. Now, on that day, I think Jesus must have prompted Peter to give this crippled man 
a gift far greater than any sum of money that he might have given him. Last week, we closed the sermon off by saying, as you go into the world around you, keep your ears open for those little promptings from Jesus when he will prompt you to some action or some activity on someone's behalf. Now, when the man asked Peter and John for money, they stopped. And Peter looked at the man and said, look at us. That surely raised the man's expectations. He'd spent his entire life asking people for money. And I'll tell you one lesson I'm sure he learned during that time. If people wouldn't make eye contact with you, they probably weren't going to give you any money. And Peter forces him into eye contact. Well, he expects some big gift. He's had a difficult life. He's been disabled. He's been unable to work. He doesn't have the kind of social assistance programs that we have today. And asking people for money was really his only option. But it was a short-term solution for a seemingly unfixable problem. That was about to change. The power of the risen Christ was about to release this man from his circumstances and give him a brand new identity. His useless limbs would function as they should, and he would no longer be the crippled man who showed up at the temple each day in need of charity. It was a dream that he had probably dreamed for years, but had likewise probably given up on a long, long time ago. However, the next words out of Peter's mouth must have sounded disappointing. Silver or gold I do not have. How many times in his life had he heard people say, sorry, I I don't have any money to give to you today. Every day he heard that over and over probably. But Peter didn't stop with those words. Silver and gold I don't have, but I got something much better to give to you. And he put that in the form of a command. He commanded the man to do something that was quite impossible. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Can you imagine the awkward pause that happens at that point in the story? The man sits there. And he's thinking, what, what, what did he say? Walk? Is he crazy? Doesn't he know that I would have done that a million times if I'd only been able? Walk? Peter's not done. He reaches out and he takes the man by the hand and begins to pull the man to his feet. What was Peter? Peter Peter was helping him make a choice that otherwise he might not have been able to make in his fear because it had to be frightening. He had never stood on his own feet. He had never walked. If Peter were to let go of his hand right now, he fears he'd just fall to the ground like a, a rag doll. Suddenly, though, he he began to feel strength in his ankles and in his feet and in his legs. Strength he'd never felt before. And then he realized he was standing. And he realized Peter wasn't holding his hand. And then he realized as he took a step that he could walk. And then he realized that he could jump up and down. I won't jump up and down. You'll just take my word for that. He, He could jump up and down. It was in every sense of the word a miracle. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then he went with them into the temple courts, 
walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There he is in that little circle at the top. He's leaping away, if you can see the circle well enough. This is kind of one of those eye tests. You know, if you can see the guy leaping, you pass the test. He's leaping, and people are running to see what's going on. They, they, they want to see what all this noise and commotion is about. And could he really be healed? Now, a summation of what Peter said to that crowd includes four simple declarations. That's a four-part sermon in one sentence. The God of Abraham did this. You killed Jesus, the author of life. God raised Jesus from the dead. This man was healed by faith in Jesus. Whose faith? It wasn't his faith. He didn't know anything about Jesus. Peter's faith was the vehicle by which the man was healed. Now, Peter said a lot more to the crowd. You can read it later this afternoon. It's a great story to read, chapters 3 and 4. But the story continues in chapter 4 where Peter, John, and the man who is now walking were confronted by the leadership of the temple, the Sanhedrin. They were upset, not so much because the man was healed. I don't think they liked that a lot, but because Peter was declaring to everyone that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that Jesus was the one responsible for this miracle. This was just about the last thing that the people in charge of the temple wanted to hear or wanted to have said because these leaders, they were the ones who killed Jesus and, and they frankly didn't want any talk about resurrection. It says in verse 2, chapter 4, these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there's a resurrection of the dead. Now, out of the Sanhedrin, a good part of them were Sadducees, and Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. It just, it, it just wasn't something that would ever happen, in their opinion. And they were the ones who had pushed hard for Jesus' death when Pilate wanted to let him go. And they wanted this whole business of Jesus of Nazareth to be over. He was an inconvenience, and they wanted nothing to do with him. So Peter and John were put into jail for the night that they might be tried in the morning. Possibly they thought that a night in jail might change the way these disciples of Jesus think. Maybe they'd come to their senses and be quiet. The next morning, Peter and John appeared before them for questioning. Now, the Sanhedrin couldn't deny that there had been a miracle because so many people had seen it. They couldn't deny that the man had been healed. So they asked the disciples, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Now, Peter had already answered that question the day before. The whole temple heard the answer to that question. But I think they want to get Peter's answer on record. They want the recording secretary of the Sanhedrin to write it down so they have this evidence against him in case they really want to seriously try Peter. Now, let's pause to remind ourselves what the primary purpose of the church is. We talked about this two weeks ago. The primary purpose of the church is to witness to the resurrected Jesus, that he is Lord and Messiah. That's our job. And that's what Peter's doing right now. He's witnessing to Jesus that he's Lord and Messiah. Now, his words to the Sanhedrin reveal two important facts 
about being a witness for Jesus. The one fact is the role of the Holy Spirit, and the second is what we have to say as witnesses. It's in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. It's on page 833 in, in your pew Bible if you want to turn to that, and we'll look at these verses, Acts 4, 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in Scripture where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. We cannot be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You notice he's able to do this because the Spirit filled him. This is implicit in the promise that we looked at two weeks ago when Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. If we want to witness for Jesus, we desperately need the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't fulfill the purpose God's given to us as a church without the Holy Spirit and his work. The second thing to note seems obvious, but we sometimes manage to miss it. Just as Peter did, we need to talk about Jesus, not about ourselves. He said, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And he's not done yet. He's just getting started. Now he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 20, verse 22, and he accuses the Sanhedrin and the entire nation of rejecting the cornerstone that was Jesus. The cornerstone is that building that gives the proper dimension to the rest of the building. It's like the little engineering trick that keeps the rest of the building in straight line and, and in that sense holds it together. He said, you rejected the one who holds all of this together. And in doing that, he adds, you've rejected God's rescue, God's salvation, because there is salvation in no one else except Jesus. So our job is, is to tell people about Jesus, not to talk about ourselves. And that's good, because there's a lot more we can really say about Jesus than we can say about ourselves. It's positive. Now, you know, at the same time, this is not the same Peter that we saw a couple of weeks ago warming himself by the fire outside that place where Jesus was on trial, who when they said, you're a follower of Jesus, three times he denied it. No, I'm not. But now he's a different man. He's bold, and, and, and he's effective. And the Sanhedrin is dumbfounded. These two men are using powerful rhetoric that you wouldn't expect from fishermen. They were using Scripture and quoting Scripture like people who had spent their life learning under a great rabbi. They didn't talk like uneducated men from a backward part of the country. And then they noticed something that's far more significant. Verse 13, they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Now, I, I, I think obviously that... that means that they looked at him and said, yeah, we remember vaguely seeing you with Jesus. 
But in saying that, they've touched on a much deeper reality that we need to think about for a minute. We recognize that you've been with Jesus. Could you ever say anything nicer about a Christian than to say that about them? I look at you and I recognize that you've been with Jesus. I I think you're becoming like him. I think you're becoming like him in the way you treat people, the way you talk. This is something you might want to think about this week. If you're looking for something to think about this week, since we don't have any sports teams that are doing anything right now, you might write down this question. Well, I guess we do have a soccer team now, don't we? My apologies to you fans of the real football. I apologize. Um, Think about this. What would we need to look like for people to look at us and say, I think you've been spending time with Jesus. Write that question down, think about it. What would I need to look like for people to look at me and say, I think you've been with Jesus. And back to the story, the Sanhedrin's caught between a rock and a hard place, to use another biblical metaphor from the Old Testament. Peter and John had performed a kindly act for a severely disadvantaged man, and that was good. But they were giving credit to Jesus, and for the Sanhedrin, that was bad. They, They didn't like that. They needed to move forward, but they needed to move forward with caution because the crowd, at least for that moment, was on the side of the disciples. They could hardly punish the two men, but they couldn't afford to let them keep preaching. So they tried to bully them into silence. Verse 18, they commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They're throwing the weight around. They're bullying the two. Be quiet. Now, Peter didn't whine about being bullied. He just simply threw the matter back to them in the form of a question. Do you think God wants us to obey us? Or wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. I like this picture because in this one, Peter looks a little bit angry. Do you really think God wants us to obey you and not him? Peter and John would not be bullied. They were determined to do their job regardless of what happened. They were going to be witnesses to Jesus. That's their job. That's the church's job. Now, the Sanhedrin leaned on them a little bit more, then released them. We read in verses 21, 22, the council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot, for everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. They're informed that they're free to go, and they promptly report back to the rest of the church, their fellow believers. We read in verse 30, 23, as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Now we get to the heart of today's exploration. Hearing the news, what did the church do? Form a committee to come up with a strategy? Complain to the media about the bullying tactics of the Sanhedrin? Appeal to the Roman government for protection? No, none of the above. They prayed. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. It's straightforward. They were doing God's work. They encountered opposition. They asked for help. That's just good common sense. And yet the content of their prayer is remarkable. I'm not sure I could have ever come up with a prayer this good. It was a big prayer. It was a strong and mighty prayer 
so much so that God responded to the prayer with something like an earthquake. The building shook. It says that, verse 31, after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God let them know he was listening. But let's explore the prayer for just a couple of minutes. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 28. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. The prayer began by quoting scripture. It's always a good place to begin a prayer. They were outlining the scriptures that predicted that the Messiah would face opposition. And in fact, that was nothing short of God's divine plan for him that he would face opposition and death. They were not seeking to remind God of something that God might have forgotten. They were reminding themselves of something they needed to know. And that is that what was happening is part of God's plan to rescue and save people. They were reminding themselves in this that God is completely in charge, completely sovereign, and therefore, no matter what they might suffer, we have nothing to fear from opposition. They had nothing to fear. They were placing themselves where we all need to be, under the sovereign reign and providential care of God. And with that assurance, they were able to pray a very big prayer, a prayer that's an example for us to follow. Verse 29, And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They didn't give in to a natural inclination to pray for deliverance or to pray for protection or to pray for safety, to pray for security. They didn't even pray for courage for courage's sake. They prayed for boldness to tell others about Jesus. And they prayed that they, like Peter and John, might by means of signs and wonders or miracles bear witness that Jesus is alive and is Lord and Messiah. Key point offered by this story is that big churches churches that have a significant impact on people, pray big prayers. They pray for boldness, and they pray for the work of God to happen. Now, is it harder today to be bold for Jesus? Fifty years ago, we had a lot more common ground with people who weren't Christians. By and large, they knew something about the Bible. They knew something about Bible stories. You would have said, rock in a hard place, and they would have known without naming the right name. They would have said, yeah, it's a story about the guy that was riding a donkey. And uh, the donkey talked. They, they, they would likely know that story. They had some conception of sin, and they had a sense that they needed some help. A much larger percentage of the population 50 years ago went to church on Sundays. That's why they knew some of the stories. That's why they knew some of these things about sin and salvation. Now we live in and what is called by most people a post-Christian culture, we don't have that common ground. People don't know the Bible stories. 
They don't even recognize the things in our English language that came out of the Bible. And in a postmodern culture, which is also typical of our, our world, truth is discounted. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And there is no one overarching truth that describes everything. But that's exactly what Jesus is. He's the truth that explains everything. So it's a little bit harder for us to be bold. And the best place for us to start is to pray the very same prayer that they prayed. And in closing this sermon, I'm going to ask you to be bold enough to pray this prayer with me. It's the prayer right out of Acts. We're using a a slightly different version uh, because it's got a little bit more punch. It's called the voice. But let's pray this prayer together where it starts, And now, Lord, let's pray. And now, Lord, take note of their intimidations intended to silence us. Grant us, your servants, the courageous confidence we need to go ahead and proclaim your message while you reach out your hand to heal people, enabling us to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen.